0: Good day. I'm particularly excited about this episode of Leader Readycast because my guest is Dr. Linda Ginzel. I've known Linda for several years. I'm a big fan of her work on leadership. Linda teaches at the Booth School at the University of Chicago. She's won numerous awards for her teaching and has legions of fans from her courses. In fact, if you've been in any one of my courses or seminars you heard me implore people to speak of leading and managing rather than leader and manager, that's Linda. Just one of the many insights I've picked up from her along the way. I think you'll glean many more from our conversation in this episode of Leader Readycast. Linda's releasing a new book, expanded version of her excellent volume, Choosing Leadership. It's not a typical leadership book, it's a workbook. That means you have to work. (laughs) It means you have to be actively engaged, not simply a passive recipient of knowledge from the guru du jour. That's part of why I think the book and Linda are so special to the understanding of what it takes to lead and what it takes to lead right now. Linda Ginzel, Welcome to Leader Cast.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. I'm so humbled and honored by your kind and generous words. Thank you so much, Eric. And it could, could be a mutual you know, admiration <laughs> society because you are really the leadership expert. And, and I'm just so uh, honored by, by uh, being a guest here with you today. Thank you.
0: Well, my pleasure. And again, I think in the, in the world of leadership, there's a lot of, shall we say, not particularly helpful content out there. So when there are mm-hmm. gems like your book, I'm like, okay, I want to grab onto it and share it with people because it really is something that can make a difference.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I part of the reason I had to write the book. I, I didn't, you know, set out to be an author. i someone says, oh, author, Linda Givens. No, 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 I'm not an author. I just had to write this book for my students because it's really hard to find. Um, I had a hard time finding. Um, leadership development, leadership material that, that I actually could believe in and could teach and felt good about. I mean, there's so much out there and, 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 you know, leadership, I mean, well, anyway, so, so thank you that, that, but that's why it was a, it was sort of an organic event that I just had to create work, work, uh, this workbook and exercises and activities for my students. And, And that's how, that's why it's a workbook because it's actually from my classroom. And from trying to help people develop their, what I call courage, capacity, and wisdom.
0: So the workbook, which is great, and then you've explained a bit about that. Why the title, Choosing Leadership?
1: So Eric, I think you foreshadowed this um, answer already with your introduction when you said that you've been uh, working on the challenge that that I was given many years ago by my friend um, Rick Lerick at Duke University where, he's the one who challenged me to say instead of talking about leaders and managers as roles or people or whatever to start um, talking about leading and managing as behaviors and it's a lot harder than it seems like it should be um, just try it if you know for the people listening just just try not to use the word leader it, it, it's really difficult um, so well if we don't use the word leader then we have to substitute it with another noun so um, that's that's for probably another question if we get to that, but. Um, The idea of verbs are so important, behaviors, right? So a lot of times people talk about attributes of leadership or, you know, uh, I don't know, critical, uh, you know, uh, aspects or attributes. And um, I try to get people to think about behavior and choice is a behavior. So choosing leadership is the title because I actually do believe that leadership is a behavior. It's a choice. Uh, It's different from managing. Uh, It's management. Managing is as important as leading. Um, They're just different behaviors and we choose to lead um, just as we choose to manage. So choosing leadership, it's an active verb and try, and and I try to um, use it to set the, the expectation about uh, what's to come in the, in the workbook.
0: Yeah. I think it's so important. Again, we, points we both make it when we're with people is that (laughs) managing and leading are, are, equally important. I know I've rarely met, only have ever met a successful executive who wasn't both pretty good at managing and pretty good at leading. And it's sort of knowing when to do both, when to attend to the present, when to attend to the future. Um, And so I think even giving people those options rather than saying, oh, you're a leader, but you're just a manager, um, giving people the option, which lets them grow into the, grow into the behaviors that you talk about.
1: So important, you know, it's so interesting. Um, I always say that, you know, when we I teach sometimes students, uh, maybe, well, I, I was gonna say younger students, but maybe people with less experience or, or such will say to me, you know, I wanna be a leader. And um, I I don't want to do all that work management work. I just want to have vision. I just want to, you know, have a vision. And and, and I I always wonder, what do they think that people go around like having hallucinations all the time that we're like just visioning that we're, we're not actually doing anything. We're just having these hallucinations about what the future could look like. And what, what do people think leadership is? How do people define leadership if, if that's what, what, is the stereotypes about what it means. So I always think to, you know, try to say, look, it's not that people are leaders or managers. Okay, so you have a vision for a better tomorrow. You don't know whether that vision's correct or not. But you you go out there, you believe in yourself, you get other people to follow you, but then say you're correct. Say you create that better future. Now what are you doing? You're in the present. Now, now you're back, you're managing. You're you're managing because you have enacted that vision, so it's. I believe it's. It's really um, kind of a, a two types of behaviors that that run. You know, I don't know, in sync, and tandem. But but we're not just leaders who lead or managers who manage as though they were different species or, you know, some uh, different categories of people. Their their behaviors and we choose.
0: And so this is a new edition of the book, and the first one was terrific. What's, what's different from the original? Mm.
1: Oh, I have to tell you, Eric, I am so excited about this book. Um, okay, so the main difference, I call it a hybrid. And, you know, just having come off of, of COVID and all our teaching with some in person and some on Zoom, and um, I, I think of hybrid as being this combination. And it's a hybrid book, not that some are in person <laughs> and some are on Zoom, but um the first part of the book is the is basically the workbook as it was in the first edition but we have an additional 100 pages and these pages are are guides to actually teach the activities from the workbook. So my idea for this hybrid book is it it's learning with one hand and teaching with the other. The same person who goes through the workbook and finds it useful, I hope, and helpful and a companion for them as they grow and maybe develop into their future self? They can take that same book and with the leadership modules, these, this is what I call the, the little instructions with videos and text and different ways to teach the activities. So anyone can teach leadership development. And, and I mean that seriously. You know, I think that um, a lot of people well you said the guru du jour right a lot and it's fine people can pay for a professor or you know go to go to school and take a class or or hear from a leadership expert and that's all fine but what about what about our own knowledge what about the knowledge and understanding of people around us i think it's so important to value that to articulate that and and to share that with each other so that we can all what I call be wiser younger so this is this is the idea you teach with one hand you learn with the other it enables people to take the workbook and go out into their community into their workplace and teach others so that so that we can just grow collective wisdom and that's why I'm so excited because it's a real uh, opportunity to make a bigger difference in the world and that's what I want to do and I think
0: want to pick up another thread here which i think is very distinctive about your work and i'd like you to dive into it a bit because so much of what we hear what we read around leading focuses on certain skills or uh emulating certain attributes and so the attributes thing has been around for a long time and makes Uh me a bit crazy but (laughs) you talk about developing wisdom finding courage and building the capacity to know when to lead how do you actually Teach wisdom. How do you teach courage? I mean, how do you, how did you um, come around to this perspective of how you wanted to approach the work? That's hard uh-huh. stuff.
1: It is really hard, but it's worth it, right? So, um, I really think that you know, people are willing to do the work and have the commitment, um, maybe needing long term commitment. So, uh, it's here's the answer. It all goes back to behavior. So, let me start with courage. A lot of people. So, I'm a social psychologist, right? And um, what that means is that, well, social psychology, uh, for people who might be interested in just knowing the difference sort of between social psychology and say personality psychology, um, personality psychology is so we would sort of develop a scale or measure people's personality structure and then try to predict their behavior. Social psychology is almost exactly the opposite. We realize that people have, are different and that they have different characters and such, but what social psychology focuses, focuses on is the power of the situation, the person in the environment. So with personality psychology, people might say, "Oh." I'm not courageous. I I just wasn't born with much courage. Now, Eric, you know, he's really a courageous guy. Do you know all the stuff he does is so courageous? But me, no, I'm not courageous. To me, that's like a cop out. What do you mean you weren't born courageous? Courage. Maybe it's, maybe it's an attribute that some people are born with more of it than others, but no matter how courageous you are, you can be more courageous if that's what you want to do. So it's a behavior. You know, a truism in social psychology is if you want to change your identity, you start by changing your behavior. So you want to be more courageous? Then take the first steps towards courage. Do something small. Set yourself up to succeed. Take a small step. Then you'll get positive feedback, and that will, will encourage you to continue to to practice more courage, to try bigger steps, and then your identity will follow your behavior. So I really believe it's it's about courage and wisdom, right? What about wisdom? You know, wisdom isn't just information or knowledge. Wisdom is our perspective on that in- information and knowledge. Wisdom is our ability to use that information and knowledge in a context different from what we learned in or, or in a different place or time. And so it all comes from behaviors and but it it has more to do with understanding the application in different contexts and so I say across time and space.
0: So really that, that, that bit about wisdom and I think is, is the ability to develop a rich and nuanced perspective on what you're dealing with. I mean that's from whence uh, judgment a
1: nice definition
0: which mm-hmm. judgment arises and that does come from experience but it also comes from open, opening yourself up to to personal growth and and understanding you know, yourself and the world around you,
1: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and very you know, much so.
0: Your, and the roots in um, social psychology, I think, are very interesting because it does bring it to behaviors, and you know that's what I've seen. We 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 spend a lot of time in organizations worrying about the structure and sort of getting the perfect structure in place. And certainly in the world of of crisis, where I spend a lot of time, there's a, a huge amount of structure which people think sort of solves all problems. Um, which, you know, structure is not a bad thing, um, but it is the behavior within the structures that tells you if you're going to get the desired outcomes or not. Um, mm-hmm. And you take, you take us all the way back to Kurt Lewin back in the 1930s, um, <laughs> sort of the roots about, you know, changing people versus changing context and changing behaviors. So explain a little bit about where this all comes from.
1: Well, Kurt Lewin is the father of social psychology, and he has this wonderful equation. You know, I teach at Booth. And so, Economics, you know, is is in the air we breathe. It's in the seats we sit in. It's in the water we drink. And I'm a psychologist, so I walk into the classroom, and every once in a while, I'll put an equation on the board, just so that people feel comfortable. You know, that they all is right with the world. They are at Booth. They're in the classroom, and um, this is uh, the equation I use from uh, Kurt Lewin, and it is uh, behavior is a function of the person and the situation. Now I mentioned personality psychology before and personality psychology, the equation would be behavior is a function of the person and it would not pay attention to situation or environment or context. I think leadership is highly contextual and so we have to think about how is our behavior affected by the situation, by the context that we're in. And so this equation behavior is a function of the person and the situation Think about this, if behavior is equal to 100 and uh, in personality psychology, the person might be equal to say 80%, which leaves the residual for the situation at 20%. But if you're a social psychologist and you think about, how do I create a strong situation, a really strong situation that moves people in a more productive direction? Well, then the equation is behavior is 100, the environment of the situation is something like 80, and that leaves the residual for the individuals which means that more people will be moved in the direction of a strong situation than a weak situation, and independent of their personalities or independent of their individual characteristics. So I think this is an incredibly useful and and, um, practical um, way of thinking. And, And I think it's, I think social psychology is the most important discipline for executives. I really do. I just think it's so powerful. So such a powerful way to think about changing behavior by changing the environment.
0: And of course changing the environment, changing the situation is a whole lot easier than changing people. People don't change, <laughs> people don't change right.
1: easily. Yeah no. I mean uh, yeah
0: <laughs> obviously we continually see like if we just if we just pour enough stuff into individuals, the system will change or we'll get we'll get better outcomes. but no matter how much we pour into individuals they only change so much and it's much easier to change the situation.
1: Right, because think about it. Right, what's in the situation? Other people, that the team, the group, um, the uh, incentives, uh, numer- um, monetary or non, um, the uh, nature of the work itself, the task itself, which can be changed and can be can be you know segmented differently or allocated differently, and etc. But the most important thing. Is you. Like right now, Eric, you are the biggest part of my situation. You've invited me, you're asking the questions, your behavior moves mine. We're I'm following your lead because you're right now the biggest part of my situation. So people, I, I don't believe that executives appreciate fully how much other people's behavior is a contingency or a or a reciprocity of their own. And there's a contingency between what you do and what you get. Um, and and that space between people is is, I think really important, um, a really important place to pay a lot of attention and think about if I change my behavior, how do I alter the situation so that the behavior of others is and I keep saying is more productive. People have to decide what that means to them, what their goal is, but the strong situation is is the key to changing behavior.
0: No, absolutely. It's interesting. I mean, thinking use of a, a classroom analogy here that when you want to get active participation in the classroom, one approach that some people take is well, let's just up the amount of the grade that is mm. dependent upon classroom participation. It's a classic mm. in business. You know, we still, we'll give a, a a bonus for this, or we'll we'll have a penalty for for noncompliance. And instead, what I find actually, or at least works for me, is I give away a lot of positional power to try and equalize and create an environment for con- for conversation. So I always mm-hmm. say, "Call me Eric." I don't stand mm-hmm. behind the podium. I walk among people. Um, mm-hmm. I encourage encourage questions, and certainly re- you know, reward people calling them. Um, but and say, if we don't get through all the stuff that's in the in the, the slides for today, that's okay. It's more important that we actually talk about the things that matter that are going to make, make a difference. And so mm-hmm. I said. That just came to my mind is not to say I'm doing a fabulous job, but to say that by changing what I do and changing Mm -hmm. the the environment in which we are doing something, that's what changes the behavior. Not that I said, well, your classroom participation grade is going to be 25% instead of 15%. Um, Exactly.
1: That's a great, great example. So I want to tell you what you're doing, right, is you're creating a culture. You're creating a certain culture. Of what it means to participate, of what it means to be a student in your classroom. And you are modeling the behavior, you are the role model. And, you know, what what is a this is a type of power, right? So you have referent power. So people look to you and they think, you know, otherwise they wouldn't follow you. you know, Eric's a great guy. I mean, he's a great teacher and he's creating this environment and I want to support that. I want to go along with this and this feels right to me. And then they buy into that and that's commitment. So commitment, you know, isn't reliant on external forces like external reinforcements or external punishments. The other thing I want to say is that of course, you're changing people's behavior when you up the percentage of their grade, but you might be getting frequency. You're probably getting frequency and that actually reduces generally the quality of the learning for all, because people just are trying to fight for airtime and they aren't necessarily saying things that are really important. They're just trying to get participation points. So all of these are changing the environment. You're just getting different behaviors as a result of them.
0: Absolutely. I think in an organizational setting, we have to pay, pay a lot of attention. We don't pay enough attention to the environment we're creating and what those the various incentives we put in place or the reward and recognition structures, mm-hmm. all of that plays an enormous role in what people actually do. And we don't pay enough attention to it when we're trying to actually change behaviors. So what are, you've talked a lot about sort of leading and leadership. And one of the things I find really interesting about your work is that you encourage your, your students, your exec ed students or students at Booth to, to come up with their own definition of leadership. And so often, you know I find either you know, people want to know what you we, know, hey, you wrote the book, what's your definition of leadership? Or you know I read this quote someplace, and this is so I've been carrying it around in my back pocket.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: um, mm-hmm. Um, you want them to develop their own definition of leadership. Why is that important?
1: Well, uh, I think it's because there's not really an answer. There's no consensual definition of leadership that no one knows the answer to here's the definition of leadership. So you can borrow someone else's definition, and if it works for you, that's okay. Um, you can, um, you know, no matter what whether you whether you I'm using it, whether the generic you, whether people who are listening now have ever um, thought about explicitly their definition of leadership. If you've thought about it, have you written it down? If you've written it down, have you considered how it is affecting the choices that you make? so for example some we are all in act we are all behaving in ways that are consistent with whatever we however we define leadership whether we are aware of it or not so if your definition some people's definition might be enabling choices and behaviors of, for themselves and for others other definitions might be inhibiting those choices and and constraining people's behaviors so unless we actually have a good handle on what we think leadership is Even if we're borrowing someone else's definition for the time being, you know, my students always say, Well, I don't know. I I have to fake it until I can make it. And I say, Well, don't fake it too long. You know, figure it out, figure it out sooner. Be wiser, younger, figure it out sooner than later. You know, when, when I said that you're a role model for your students and you have referent power, well, referent power is like charisma, right? Referent power is what gets people look to you and they say, wow, I want to be like you. And they watch you and they observe you and they start learning from you. This is what charisma is. What is charisma? I think charisma is a really not a very useful concept. You know, people always tell me, oh, well, you know, I don't have charisma. You know, I'm not like, uh, you know, fill in the blank, whoever is your most charismatic ideal. And you're never gonna be that charismatic ideal, but that's not the goal. The goal is to figure out what it is about you that makes other people want to follow you, believe in you, trust in your vision of a tomorrow, of a better tomorrow, because you don't know, you've never been to the future. You don't know whether it's there or your vision. So you have to believe in yourself. And then you might be taking these people over a cliff. They have to believe in you too. So if you don't understand, the basis on which you are operating, your definition of leadership, I'm not sure how you can really get people to, to buy into what you're trying to accomplish because I don't think it has as much, maybe what I would call structural integrity, You know, depth. And, and you know, if you're using someone else's definition and you don't really, really own it, I don't think it's as strong. It doesn't have as much um, power.
0: And I think that so often people grab for someone else's definition because you're afraid of it being wrong. But, but
1: there's no wrong. There no wrong. <laughs> there's no right.
0: <laughs> that's <is no> right. <laughs> a, a hard thing for people to understand something that grasp and accept. But that's one of the, the, the I think, the great <laughs> interesting things about this field. I learn I something every time I hear someone else's definition of, of what leading is all about.
1: Mm-hmm. The, you also talk a lot What's about- What's your people. definition,
0: Eric? What's so, your definition of leadership? I well, it's I actually use two together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I, they're not mine. I picked them up along the way. Um, one is from a woman named uh, Sophie Tranchell, who uh, runs a social enterprise over in the UK. And I interviewed her a few years ago. And I asked her about this. And she said, leading is seeing change that needs to happen and doing something about it.
1: hmm
0: Um, which I like. I I don't think Mm -hmm. it was complete, but I I liked it. It was sort of, okay, you you see the situation, you understand something happened, and you're willing to be the the active participant to do something about it and and hopefully bring others with you. Mm -hmm. The other one that I I like is from a, a gentleman named Matthew Upchurch who, Strange place. He runs actually a, a a network of luxury travel advisors. I did a talk <laughs> in. Oh, I like um, that
1: job. I would like that job. Luxury yeah, I, travel I, advisors. That sounds really. I great. did a talk for
0: him in in South Africa several years ago,
1: <clears throat> and
0: <laughs> what well, he sort of set the talk up by saying, you know, leading is getting everyone to give up a little bit of self interest in order to achieve more together than anyone could alone. And again, I like that one a lot because it does speak to not just the leader, but to all, everyone, to the followers as well. And, and part of it, leading is bringing people together. So there is a there is collective action. There is a, uh, a shared commitment to a different future. And I, mm-hmm. so I like, like that as well. So I, I often use those two in tandem. Um, mm-hmm. And then at, you know, at the MPLI here at, at Harvard, um, we often say the only evidence that you're teaching is that people are following you. So we Mm -hmm. talk about people follow you. And of course, the follow piece is moderately complex. The people and the you are very complex Mm -hmm. because it involves humans and human behavior. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've got to pay a lot of attention to followers, which is something you talk a lot about in the book as well. You know, what do you think we need to better understand about followers and following?
1: You know, it's such a great question. I I don't know that I really talk a lot about it. I wish I knew more. I wish I understood it better. Um, I'm really only starting to get a better handle on following, and mostly as a result of uh, conversations with my amazing students who who have taught me most, really, honestly. Uh, my family and my students have probably taught me more about leadership than any, uh, you know, 100 books or so that I've read. But um, I, I've been thinking a, a lot about following. You know, I think there are thousands and thousands of articles and theories and books about leadership in there. You can count on your hands, the number of books and theories and such about following. And I think it's because we have this stereotype of followers as being sheep or passive or, you know, um, and I think that that might, might be one stereotypical notion of, of followers as sheep, but really, I think a lot of following behavior is very much like leading behaviors. Mm -hmm. You have to be actively engaged. You have to be thinking critically. You have to step up and do something. And um, so I've been talking a little bit with my students about following. And so some of them tell me that you follow when you are not sure yet what the change is that you want to make. And so you're following in order to learn and get to a better place where you know, because why, Eric? We can't when we when we when we choose leadership, we leave the security, the stability of the present, and we go to a place that doesn't exist. That's a really risky behavior. That's it could be actually dangerous because, like I said, we don't know what's in the future. We haven't been there, so we can't make the choice to lead, especially big transformational change, too often. Because we'll just wear ourselves out and we'll wear everybody out around us. so we really have to to think about when do we make this choice to lead and following I think is a great a great way to help you figure that out and um also to contribute to the vision um, for all you know I always tell my students that sometimes it's better you know why do we all want to lead it's so. It's so uh, really not useful for all of us to jump in there and try to be, you know, driving the, the the car, you know, whatever, you know, leading everyone in a certain direction. Sometimes you do more by following, by 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 contributing. Oh, here's the question. I love this question. What is your definition? What does it mean to contribute? And the answer to that depends on the situation. And sometimes the biggest contribution is to follow. So I think followership is really complicated. It has more stereotypes around it than leadership and I haven't figured it out, but um, I do like the definition, Kelly's Kelly's model of followership, which has two dimensions, um, active engagement, which can be passive to active and thinking, which can be uncritical to critical. So uncritical, passive, Uncritical thinking and passive engagement is sheep and you move up along the slope and critical thinking and um, active engagement is an effective follower. So maybe that was more than you wanted to know, but that's what I, that, that's all I know about following. I no, think it's really important.
0: Believe me, I, I actually I turned down the corner of the page in the book with the, uh, with that diagram in it, because I think it's a really good way of explaining the range of followers. And as you say, they aren't just sort of they don't have to be sheep they can be sometimes but they, but you really don't want sheep actually if you're trying to no. transform an organization um no. you need people who and are... you don't
1: want to be a sheep either because sometimes you're a follower Exactly. even if you think you're you know you, you you're the you're the ceo you're not leading all the time you're not a lot of times you're managing and, and a lot of times you're following we just don't think of it that way because of the stereotypes around what that word means.
0: And, and that's why I think it's so important where we started about talking about behaviors and talking about leading and managing, because you know so often we think of leader as a status position, mm-hmm. and that's something that you so you aspire to. That you want to be a leader. God knows we are pitch that every day, all day, every day, um, from various sources. of will be a leader, and right now you said you're you're following me in a different situation. I may be following you. You are the leader. I'm mm-hmm. the follower. Mm-hmm. I think we work best that doesn't affect the status of any one of either one of us. It's just, we are playing different roles in the situation. And if you can, if your greatest contribution here is to follow my questions, that's great. That's how the listeners get the most out of this conversation. If in a different situation I'm following you, that's what we want to do as well. And that doesn't demean either one of us or elevate either one of us into some sort of lofty place.
1: Yeah, It helps us accomplish our goals. So as, as you with your, you know, one of your definitions of leadership, it's like, you know, together, we're doing something that we couldn't either one of us couldn't do alone individually. So can you imagine this podcast without a guest? It'd yeah. be a lecture, right? You'd <laughs> right. be lecturing, which is fine. You're a, you're an amazing lecturer, I know, and so that would be fine. But it wouldn't be a podcast, and it's not the goal that that you have for this series. So, so I think it's uh, really important for people to think about leading, managing, and following, and not just to think that other people follow. We also follow. It's one of the behaviors that we can choose alongside leading and managing.
0: We've talked a lot about the situation, and certainly the situation for many people these days is quite turbulent. We've got a lot going on in the world. We've got craziness in the markets right now. Those who choose to lead have to cope with a lot of disruption, sometimes they're causing the disruption, but certainly a lot of ambiguity because the future is uncertain. But what advice do you have for them?
1: Mm. Well, I want to tell you. Um Well, the advice is to learn how to create your own structure, but that's too abstract. So let me let me back up a little bit. Um, You know, some years ago, one of my executive MBA students uh, got a big job and like, you know, international uh, talent search agency job. And um, she said to me, you know, Linda, you know what these companies are looking for? They're looking for executives who can manage ambiguity and they can't find them. Now, this was, you know, maybe five years ago, so this was before COVID, so if you want to talk about how much more uncertainty, how much more instability, you can just multiply that, right, magnify that number. So I was thinking, you know, I'm part of the problem. Why is it that they can't find executives who can manage ambiguity? I've, you know how many thousands of executives I've taught in my life, and think about you, Eric, you too, right? Right. So what am I doing wrong that doesn't help my students to be able to manage ambiguity? So I started changing the way that I teach. And I, you know, the reason, so here's the thing. When we have structure, there's no ambiguity. So in the classroom, the professor gives you a rubric. They say, here's the assignment. Here's what you need to do. You know, here's, you know, here's the framework. You know, it's due next week. Well. Smart people can follow a framework. I mean, that's not hard. You just fill in the blanks with the readings, with the knowledge, whatever. But when you're not handed a rubric, when you're not handed a framework, that's ambiguity. So in the real world, we people don't generally aren't handed a framework for how to structure the concepts. What are the most important things to pay attention to? What data do we need? So I started teaching my students to create their own frameworks, and this is in the workbook too. We have. Um, How do you create a vicarious learning framework? So how do you learn by observing others? What do you wanna learn? What are you gonna collect? Who are you gonna talk to? What Create your own structure. So the way to manage ambiguity is to create your own structure. And then once you get get, uh, practiced at creating frameworks or structures, it will become second nature to you. It's a way to organize data and to organize your thinking more efficiently, more effectively. And then the other thing I think is just to be comfortable staying in the question. So, um, you know, executives there's, it's always, you know what was it this old book said, you know, we have a bias for action, you know, we have a bias for action. And of course people wanna to move to closure. We wanna get things done and move on, but there can be a lot of benefit in just staying in the question, not rushing to closure. And the problem is a lot of times there's this anxiety or this, this tension when you're not finished with something and people think of that as anxiety, but you could think of that sort of psychological tension as creative, creative tension, you know, a task is incomplete and that means it's open to opportunity. And so this is called, you know, the Zygarnik effect, right? So the Zygarnik effect is um, um, this purported psychological tension that we have from an incomplete task. And by harnessing that tension, you can better deal with ambiguity. You can better, you can be more comfortable in ambiguity while you're creating the structure in order to manage it. So it's both the feeling of, of kind of anxiety from the lack of closure and the lack of um, now, um, you know, more certainty that we need to understand and manage and the process by which we're able to reduce that ambiguity and, and to, um, to be able to do the work that needs to be done.
0: That's fabulous. Those are really interesting insights. My final question for you is a question I ask all of my guests. What gives you hope?
1: <laughs> the tough world out
0: there, what gives you hope?
1: Oh, you know, it's so funny, Eric. I have to say that, you know, my my signature uh, symbol is the green pen. And uh, I give all my students a green pen. And if I have not sent you a green pen, I will put one in the mail to you immediately.
0: I a have a treasure it.
1: Excellent excellent. Well then I, I feel better about my I have not uh, you know messed up on that one. So the green pen, uh, why? it's uh, Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet um, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature, wrote his poetry about love and social justice. He he himself said that he wrote his poetry in green ink because green is the color of Esperanza. So esper, Esperanza is hope in Spanish. So I have hope all around me. every my glasses are green, my bag is green. I keep hope all around me. but what gives me hope? Um, you know it's something we were talking about before we started recording that I am trying to go younger with these lessons. I have hope about the future um, the 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 future because more and more. <laughs> So for almost all my life, I have been teaching MBAs. I've been teaching executives. And last year, I started teaching uh, leadership at the University of Chicago in the college. I am so excited. And a couple of years ago, I also started creating curricula for high schools. And I just have hope because when I work with these young people, they have their whole future ahead of them. They have so many choices to make. And they listen with with these ears and, and they learn with this these eyes that are so hopeful and so encouraging about the opportunities that lay ahead. So I really feel like choosing leadership, this, this workbook, um, the message that I give that you know that's in it, that you have to figure things out yourself and that you're valuable and your knowledge. And so you don't know everything, fine. So you're gonna continue growing and learning and work on your future self. So that's what's giving me hope these days is I'm going younger, this wiser, younger notion. Um, And uh, even for people who aren't in high school or college, I always say, you know, no matter how old you are, you're never going to be younger than you are today, but you can be wiser tomorrow. (laughs) So if that's not hopeful, I don't know what is.
0: Oh, that's a great thought, a great way to end this, this episode. Thank you, Linda Gonzalez, for joining us. To all of our listeners, I encourage you to go get your copy of Choosing Leadership, the new edition just out. It's well worth your time and effort. And until next time, always be ready to lead. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader Readycast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.